I invite you to bow your hearts with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your house with your people this evening. We thank you for the reminders that you have already given to us for the communion that we were able to celebrate, that we remind ourselves of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And this evening, as we come to your word, our prayer is simple. Lord, we ask that you would show us Christ. As we embark on the study of this book, which is all about Christ, I ask you, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, do an amazing work in our hearts. This evening and every time we'll come together to study this book verse by verse, I pray that you would give us greater vision and understanding of who Christ is, of what he has done for us, and how we ought to live in light of that. I ask this this evening as we introduce this book, that you would give me grace to give us an overview so that we may see where we're going and what we are to expect. Lord, there's nothing that we could say that can help us or change us. It is only when your spirit will take your words and apply them to our hearts. That is when change will happen. And I pray that this would not just be time, a check mark, another sermon, but that you would change lives. I pray for every heart here that those who know you, that they would grow in their love for Christ. And if there are any here who don't know you, I do pray that you would help them to see Christ, that you would soften their hearts, that you would humble them to come, to repent, to believe, and to exalt Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. As you're making your way there, I want, you to tr- I want you to travel back with me to the first century. The year is 61 AD. The city is Rome. In a fairly large room stands an elite Roman soldier who's part of Praetorian Guard. There are about 10,000 of such soldiers in the entire Roman Empire. Their primary function is to keep peace and to protect Caesar. Last few months, this soldier has been assigned to guard a prisoner named Paul. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of that soldier. You're not a Christian. You're a pagan. You have seen a battle or two and you have guarded a prisoner or two. But this prisoner is unlike any other. This prisoner seems to be running an empire-wide enterprise right from his prison cell. Because he is afforded prison, because he is afforded freedom, people are coming in and out. There's a stream of people going in and a stream of people going out from this room where he's stationed. There are people who are bringing food to him and all the necessities. He's got a doctor named Luke who regularly comes to visit him, who takes care of any needs that he might have. And besides taking care of all his needs, all these people, they come to this man for counsel. As you listen to their conversations, you overhear that 
Some of the guys have traveled for thousands of miles just to speak with this guy. And as they speak with him, all of the conversation and everything that he says revolves around one guy named Jesus. They talk about idolatry as if it's a big deal. They talk about some moral virtues which are unheard of in your society. These men and women are bringing report from all over the world about an organization that this man seems to be running, which he calls church. As he listens to all of these reports, Paul sits down and he begins to dictate a letter. A secretary comes in, he sits down and he writes every word that he says, and then Paul reads the letter, he signs it with his own hand, and the man goes off to his destination. When there is a moment of silence in that room, Paul begins to pray. He spends hours upon hours talking to his God and bringing all the petitions that all these guys bring to him. He thanks God for the work that he's doing in his organization he calls church. And he brings all the requests and all the needs that he has. And this routine goes on not for a day, not for a week, but by this time for almost two years. Now, one of the letters written from that room is the letter to the church in Colossae. Now, our desire starting tonight and going over the next few months is to study this book. And in order for us to understand what this book is about, we're going to have to transport ourselves back into the time when this was written. You've got to remember, it's been almost 2,000 years since this has been written. It was written to people in a different place with a different culture. But I hope as we understand where they were and what they were going through, we will see that this book has relevance for us here in 2020. This book is as practical today as it was the day it was written. My job this evening is to look at the first two verses of this book and to give us an overview of this book, to give us an introduction to see where we're going. But before we do that, I want to talk about the overarching theme of this book. As we were thinking about how to put it in a short little sentence what this book is about, this is what the theme of the book is. Basically, the theme is simple. It is complete in Christ. Living in light of Christ's fullness. This is what Paul wants to tell the church in Colossae, that you are complete in Christ. And because you are complete in Christ, you are to live your life in light of that fullness. Now, the thrust of this book is the person of Jesus Christ. This is what this book is all about. You see, Jesus Christ is not just your path to heaven when you get there and stand before God and you say, you should let me into heaven because I believe in Jesus. No, Jesus is what you live by. That is precisely what Paul says, Colossians 3, 4. He says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You start your Christian life by believing in Jesus Christ. You live your Christian life by li living by faith in Jesus Christ. And when you die, 
You're going to meet Jesus Christ, and you're going to spend eternity with him. You see, the message of the book of Colossians is that Christ is so preeminent that to substitute him for something or for someone else is blasphemous. Jesus Christ is so sufficient that you need to look for nothing else and you need to go nowhere else because all you need is in Christ. In him you have been made complete. Chapter 2 verse 10. Are you looking for acceptance with God? All you need is Christ. Are you looking for knowledge and wisdom? All you need is Christ. Are you looking for power? For your Christian life, all you need is Christ. Are you looking for completeness? All you need is Christ. Are you struggling with sin? All you need is Christ. Is your marriage on the rocks? All you need is Christ. Do you need help in your ministry? All you need is Christ. You see, that's why the title of this message is All You Need is Christ. But you see, Paul doesn't just tell us that Jesus is all you need and that Jesus is enough. In these four chapters before us, he explains to us how Jesus is enough. How you are to live practically in light of the completeness and in light of the fullness that you have in Christ. Our desire is that as we study this book, that we would see who Christ is. And that as we see this picture of the glorious Christ, so that we would see what impact that has on our life. How we are to live in light of the preeminence and the sufficiency of Christ. As we begin tonight, I'm going to read first 14 verses of this book. And then I'll give you three things that we'll talk about. We'll talk about the author, we'll talk about the audience, and we'll talk about the address from first two verses. Join me as I read Colossians chapter 1, first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learn it, from Epaphras, our beloved and faithful bondservant, who's a servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father 
who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's begin with our first point and talk about the author. Paul begins this book and he says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. We're good. Let's go on to second point. No. There's more to this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, you don't need to go past the first word of this book to figure out who wrote this book. Now, up until 19th century, no one questioned Paul's authorship of this book. It is only later on in the 19th century that people came along and they started wondering how maybe Paul didn't write this book. There are 27 books in the New Testament, 13 of them written by Paul. And every single one of the letters written by Paul begins with Paul. You have to read just the first word to see who the author is. Now in the book of Colossians, Paul mentions his name not once, not twice, but three times. If you look at verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And as he closes the book in chapter 4, verse 18, he says again, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Paul inserts his name in the introduction, in the body, and in the conclusion of the letter. Now, the reason why some liberals challenge Paul's authorship of the book, they say it's threefold. Number one, they say it's language. You see, in the book of Colossians, Paul uses certain words and certain phrases that he doesn't use anywhere else. And because of that, they claim that, well, maybe Paul didn't write this. As if Paul is supposed to say exactly the same thing in exactly the same way in every letter. Second reason, they say that there's theologies different in Colossians. In the book of Colossians, Paul talks about some doctrines that he doesn't address anywhere else. Or he focuses on some things that he doesn't speak in his, other's letter, in his other letters. And again, there's an assumption here that Paul has to write about the same thing to every church. While people are in different circumstances dealing with different issues. And obviously Paul would speak of different things in the letter. And the third reason why some people doubt Paul's authorship of this book is its relationship to the book of Ephesians. No doubt you read the book of Ephesians and you read the book of Colossians. And there is a great overlap between these two books. Many of the things that we'll read in the book of Colossians are found in the book of Ephesians. And so they say, well, why would Paul write two books that are pretty much the same and talk about the same thing? Well, first of all, the books are not the same. And this uh, assertion here that there's great similarity to the book of Ephesians goes against what previously it says, well, it's just too different from other books. Yes, Paul does say some things that he says somewhere else, but the point and the context in which he says them, they're different. Because people in the city of Colossae were dealing with different issues, and that's why Paul talks about this way in the book of Colossians. Now, just in case you need more evidence that Paul wrote this book, I want you to consider another letter that Paul wrote, letter to Philemon. Now, virtually no one doubts that 
Paul wrote the letter to Philemon. I want you to hold your finger here in the book of Colossians, and I want you to go to Philemon. And we'll see the things that are mentioned here and there, and we'll see that it comes from the pen of the same author. First of all, both letters are written from prison. If you go to Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. Skip down to verse 10, and he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greeting. Now in Philemon 1, Paul introduces himself and he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Later on in verse 23, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you. So both letters are written from the same prison. Not only that, in the introduction of both letters, we see the mention of both Paul and Timothy. In chapter 1 of 1 of Colossians, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And in Philemon 1, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Another interesting fact about these two short letters is that there are tremendous amount of names and relationships that are mentioned here. Go to Colossians chapter 4, and I'm not going to read all these verses, but just to observe, notice all the names that are mentioned here. Beginning in verse 10, you have here Aristarchus. You have Mark. Then you have Jesus in verse 10, 11. In verse 12, you have Epaphras. In verse 14, you have Luke. You have Demas. In verse 15, you have Nympha. In verse 17, you have Archippus. There are a lot of names that Paul mentions here. Now, if you go to Philemon Philemon 23 and 24, notice the same names that Paul lists here. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So the same guys are with Paul in Rome when he's writing both of these books. Another fellow that we know is by the name of Onesimus. You remember the runaway slave? That's why the book of Philemon was written. And he's mentioned in both letters. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, I'm going to send Tychicus to you. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number. And then that's the entire point of the book of Philemon. He's writing to Philemon so that he would accept back Onesimus. And in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Now, both letters finish exactly the same way where Paul says, I am writing this greeting with my own hand. Colossians 4.18, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And in Philemon 19, he says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. There is absolutely no doubt that the book of Colossians comes from the pen of the apostle Paul. Go back to Colossians chapter 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. As Paul opens this letter, he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Of the 13 letters that Paul wrote, 
nine of them begin with this identification. In nine of them, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The only letters that do not have that is the letter to the church in Philippi, First and Second Thessalonians, and the letter of Philemon that we just looked at a minute ago. Now, the reason why he doesn't have to identify himself as an apostle there is because those churches were so familiar with Paul, and Paul did not have to bring in his authority as he wrote those letters. When Paul writes this letter and every other letter, he inserts this here and he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is an official representative of Jesus Christ. These words do not come just from guy who wants to give you some suggestions. No, this is an official representative of Jesus Christ. The, the term here, when he says Paul and apostle, this is used in the technical sense. Apostle literally means just the sent one. And it is used in a loose sense, if you will, that you could be sent by somebody and you could be apostle from this church. Or you could be used in the technical sense where we're referring to the original 12 whom Jesus chose and then Paul. The apostles, the 12 and the Paul, they had special qualifications. The apostles saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. Why? Because they were witnesses of his resurrection. Acts chapter 1. All the apostles were chosen directly by Christ, and they were commissioned directly by Christ. In other letters, Paul explains how he didn't volunteer for this job. God chose him from his mother's womb, and he has appointed him, and he has commissioned him on the road to Damascus when he saved him. And finally, from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, we read that apostle had special signs. Where Paul defends his apostleship in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, the signs of the true apostles were present with me. According to 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Paul was the final apostle. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lists all the people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. And then in verse 8, he says, and last of all, as to the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now because of this, we can say that there are no apostles today. Now because Paul is an apostle, he has authority to command churches. Elders have authority in a local church. They have responsibility over a local church. An apostle has authority not only over a local church, but he has authority over all the churches. That's why Paul was able to be in Rome, and he's able to command the church in Philippi. He's able to tell things to the church in Corinth. He's able to speak to the church in Colossae. Why? Because he's an apostle, and he has that authority. Now notice, Paul says here, I did not volunteer for this job. Because he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. When Paul got saved, he didn't go to church and fill out a resume to be an apostle. No, he says, this has happened according to the sovereign choice of God. He chose me for this job from my mother's womb. Therefore, this letter is not just an optional suggestion. This letter comes to the church in Colossae. It comes to us today as a command from Jesus Christ himself. And it is so fitting that Paul calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ because the entire book is going to be about Jesus Christ. If you're going to want to learn about Jesus Christ, you want to learn from his official representative. And so Paul says, listen, I have been commissioned by Christ, and what I'm going to do in this book, I'm going to tell you all about Jesus Christ. 
And as so often ha- happens in the introductions, Paul includes names of his co-workers. And he does so here, he says, and Timothy are brothers. Now these are not co-authors, but these are co-senders. Paul is writing the letter. And there's debate as to why Paul includes these individuals in the introduction to the letter. And most likely reason why he does so is because the man he mentions in the introduction had special relationship with the churches to whom he was writing. In this case, we're not exactly sure the relationship between Timothy and the church in Colossae, but there's absolutely no doubt that they knew of him, and we'll see later on the reason why. Paul simply identifies Timothy here. He says he is the brother. He is brother. So Paul is the author. Timothy is the co-sender. Let's look secondly at the audience. Audience in verse 2, he says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. First, notice that Paul uses two terms here to identify his readers. In the text here, he says here, to the saints and faithful brethren. Now, these are not two groups of people, but rather these are two designations of the same group. First, he says, to the saints. Saints. Now, just to be sure, this letter is not to address to the venerated class of believers in the Catholic Church. That came later. He's writing to believers, and he says here, this letter is to the saints, to the holy ones, to those who have been set apart. But this does not mean that there is a group of believers in the church who have attained a special level of holiness. You see, all of the believers who are in Christ, and all of the believers are in Christ, all of them are saints. Now, holiness has two sides to it. On the one hand, it is separation from sin, and on the other hand, it is dedication to God. We will see later on in this book that he's going to say that God, the Father, has taken you out of the world, and he has brought you into the fellowship and into the kingdom of his Son. He has taken you away from sin, and he has dedicated you. He has separated you to be his people. Now, we know that this is a reference to all of the believers because that is exactly how he will use this word later on. Look at verse 4. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for who? For all the saints. Skip down to verse 12. He says, given thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Verse 26. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now, but has now been manifested to his saints. You see, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. Now, that doesn't mean that you always act like a saint. We're talking about your positional standing before God. You have been separated unto God. But notice not only that, Paul says here, this letter is to the saints Even, we can translate, faithful brethren. Like I said, these are not two separate groups in the church. And the second phrase here is not just randomly inserted here. 
Paul strategically places this phrase here to the faithful brethren. He does it only one other time in the letter of Ephesians. Now, from the very outset of this letter, Paul wants believers in Colossae to know that saints are those who remain faithful. It is the faithful saints. Now, in the face of heresies, in the face of opposition that church in Colossae was, fa- was facing, Paul is reminding them from the very get-go, from the very introduction, he's going to say to them, guys, listen, saints are those who remain faithful. And he doesn't just say it once in this letter. He returned to this theme again and again. Look at verse 7. Look how he describes Epaphras. He says here, just as you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. In Colossians chapter 4, look at verse 7. He says, as to my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother, and faithful servant and fellow bondservant, and the Lord will bring you information. Again, in verse 9 of the same chapter, he says, and with him, Onesimus, who is our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. Now go back to chapter 1, and notice how he describes saints. In chapter 1, verse 23, this is what he says. Yet, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body. Jesus Christ reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's a description of a saint. You are holy, you are blameless, and you are beyond reproach. And notice what he adds here in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Notice that saints remain faithful. If you remain steadfast, then he has reconciled you. If you don't remain steadfast, then he has not reconciled you in the past. Now, this church, as we'll see in a minute, was under attack from false teaching. And Paul reminds them from the very beginning that saints are those who remain faithful. So believers are saints, and they are faithful. Now, notice second, that Paul gives two realms in which believers live. Notice he says there's a spiritual realm here, and then there's physical realm here. He says, to the saints and faithful brethren... In Christ, who are at, or literally in, Colossae. You see, the reason why saints remain faithful is not because they're so strong. It's not because they have, you know, will to persevere. No, it is because of this phrase that he uses here, and he will use again and again in the book of Colossians. It is this phrase, because they are in Christ. Saints have union with Christ. They are placed in Christ when they believe in him. When they confess their sins, when they repent, they are placed into Christ. And not only are they placed into Christ, Christ lives in them. Look at verse 27. He says, To whom God willed to make known the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, this is going to be the basis for everything else he will command in this book. The reason why you could live an obedient life is because you are in Christ. The reason why you have power to obey is because Christ 
is in you. You have a spiritual union with Christ as a result of your salvation. But notice, not only are they spiritually in Christ, physically he says they are in Colossae. There's a physical realm here. He says, to the saints who are at Colossae. A few words about the city of Colossae. This was a city located in a Roman's province, Roman province of Asia, which is a modern-day Turkey. You know the city of Ephesus? This city is about 100 miles east of Ephesus. This is an old city. We know that it's been around at least in the 5th century B.C. Originally, the city was built on a major trading route, and that's why the city was prominent. But as two cities that were right next to it, the city of Hierapolis and the city of Laodicea became more prominent, the city of Colossae declined. At its peak, Colossae was the center of the wool industry because of the fields that surrounded the city. The population of the city was primarily Gentile, although some Jews were present. Now, what do we know about the church in Colossae? How was the church started in that city? Now, as far as we know, Paul has never been to the city of Colossae. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, he says here, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those, notice he says, who have not personally seen my face. Paul's information about this church is secondhand. In verse 4, he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ. In verse 8, he says that Epaphras has informed us of your love in the Spirit. If you read through the book of Acts, when Paul traveled the region where he established the churches, nothing is mentioned about the church in Colossae. We do know that Paul spent three years in the city of Ephesus. And according to Luke, during that time when he spent that time there, according to Luke, Acts chapter 19, verse 10, it says that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. Paul and his associates, they have traveled the region preaching the gospel. And people who traveled to Ephesus, which was a major city, from all over the place, they came in, they heard the gospel, and they went out with the gospel. This was most likely the case with the church in Colossae. Now, we do know that Paul knew individuals in this church. For example, the letter of Philemon is written to Philemon, and Philemon was a member of the church in Colossae. In fact, the church in Colossae met at Philemon's house. We know that from Philemon, from the book of Philemon. We know that Philemon was converted under Paul's ministry. And we know that because in Philemon 19, Paul says, I am writing this with my own hand. I will repay. And then he adds this note, not to mention that you owe me even your own self as well. You owe me your life because I preached the gospel to you. Now, there are other individuals that are mentioned in this book by name, which we assume is the reason that Paul knew them Epaphras is mentioned in verse 7. He's also mentioned later on in chapter 4, verse 12. Now, this man was most likely the pastor of the church in Ephesus, from every uh, church in Colossae. Everything that we know him suggests to us that that was the case. Now, we know that believers 
got saved because they heard the message of the gospel from Epaphras. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. Paul says that you have learned it, you have learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved and fellow, our beloved fellow bond servant. And notice how Paul describes him. He is our faithful, who is faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. It is possible that this man was converted under Paul when he was ministering in Ephesus. And then Paul sent him back to his own, home, own hometown to preach the gospel there. That's why he says he is a minister of God on our behalf. When Epaphras arrived to the city of Colossae, he began to preach the gospel and the church was established. The membership of the church in the city was primarily Gentile. We know that because in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Now that we know a little bit about the church in Colossae, let's talk about the challenges that this church was facing. Now as you read the letter, it's like listening to a phone conversation, but the only thing that you're hearing, you're hearing one person talk. So you have to fill in the blanks and you have to figure out what's coming on the other end. And that's what it's like reading the book of Colossians, reading this book. We have to fill in the gaps, we have to insert the missing pieces. So what can we say about the condition of the church when this letter was written? First of all, we can say that at the moment of writing, believers in the church of Colossae were doing well. They were spiritually doing well. We know this because as we will study next time, Epaphras, who is probably their pastor, he travels to Rome to inform Paul of the circumstances that are, of the things that are going on in the church. And as you will see in chapter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, Paul is just excited about the progress that they are making there. In chapter 4, I'm sorry, in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Believers were faithful there. They believed they had faith in Christ Jesus. They had love for all the believers. And notice he says here that the gospel is making progress, he says, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God and truth. We can say that the letter of Colossians is a preventative letter rather than a corrective letter. The church is doing well, but the church is being attacked. And that's our second thing. The church in Colossae was a church under attack from false teachers. Notice in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive. I mean, just imagine this picture. He says, there is somebody who wants to enslave you, who wants to rob you of your freedom. Your faith is being assailed, and you are to stand firm. Colossians, remain faithful. Don't fall for the lies of the devil that are being advocated by some. So we ask the question, what was the heresy that was attacking the church in Colossae. And there isn't one name that we can put on this heresy in the historical terms because it was a sort of a hybrid spirituality. As we will study chapter 2 of this book, we will see that this was a mixture of Greek philosophy, some Jewish legalism, and pagan mysticism and asceticism. If you boil it down to one phrase, it basically came down to this, you need something more than Jesus. Jesus is not enough. Oh, you need 
special knowledge. And the special knowledge is available only to the few. It's not available to the average Christians, so you need to find those special believers to get that special knowledge. The physical world that you live in, including your very own body, is actually evil. You see, the reason this world exists and the way it came into being is that God has created a good angel, and then that good angel created another angel, and then that angel created another angel, and then finally down the line that one of those angels created the world. Matter is evil. World is evil. Body is evil. Jesus Christ is, is that highest angel that God has created. Now, Jesus Christ was not actually man because God would not be associated with evil flesh. He would not put on evil flesh. In order for you to get back to God, you need to get back to God the way it got to you. You need to get back to those angels and you need to worship them so that one day you could eventually get back to God. That's why in Colossians chapter 2 verse 18, you had these false teachers who were advocating the worship of angels. You see, your problem, they said, is your body. That's why you have here legalism. That's why, that's why you have here severe treatment of the body in Colossians 2.23. You need to restrain your desires so that you can get past all this physical stuff and you get to the spiritual, the mind, the spirit where the things are actually good. Get circumcised, keep strict dietary laws. You must observe some feasts, some holidays and stay away and do not touch the things that would tell you that they are unclean so that you can be an elite Christian. What is Paul's answer to all this? Paul's answer is simple. He says Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15. Oh no, he is not an angel's angel, but he created all the angels. In Colossians 1.16, he says, For by him all things were created, whether in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is the one who spoke everything into existence. He is God himself. He is the Lord of creation. And not only is he fully God, he's also fully man. Because in order to bring you back to God, he paid the ultimate price. Colossians 1.22, he says he has now reconciled you. How? In his fleshly body through death. In order for you to die, you have to have flesh and bones. He says Jesus Christ had flesh and bones. Angels did not create the world, but Jesus did. Jesus created the angels whom you claim to worship. Are you looking for wisdom? Are you looking for some special knowledge? Do you know where you get it? Colossians 2, 3, he says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, your problem is not your body. The problem that you have is the problem of your mind. Because in chapter 1, he says, You were hostile in mind. As a result of that, you were engaged in evil deeds. And when you come to Christ, when you exercise your faith in Christ... He says, you come in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, you have been made complete. Positionally, you have been made complete by your standing in Christ. And then practically, if you look at chapter 1, verse 28, he says, we proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present 
every man complete in Christ. Positionally, you have everything that you need in Christ. You are complete. You could not be any better. And he says, practically, in order for you to become just like Jesus Christ, what you need is not special knowledge. What you need is not rules to keep, some festivals to attend, or your body to be tamed. What you need is you need Christ. That is the message of the book of Colossians in a nutshell. You, all you need is Christ. Jesus Christ is sufficient for you to be saved. And Jesus Christ is sufficient for you to be sanctified. The problem is not in your body. Because the problem was solved in the body of Christ when he hung on the cross and he died the death that you deserve to die. Finally, in the minute that I don't have, let's look at the address or the greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, some of your translations might add there in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's just a textual variant that is not attested in best manuscripts. Now, grace was a standard Greek greeting. Peace was a standard Hebrew greeting because they say shalom, right? And most likely Paul has taken these two greetings. He combined them to make his signature greeting in every letter. Now, everything that you have, you are a saint and you are faithful because of the grace of God. What is grace? Simply put, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. When God gives to you what you don't deserve, and he does so because of the work of Christ. And he adds here, because of the grace of God, you have peace with God. Now notice you need grace and you need peace not only to be saved, but to continue in your saved life. He's talking to believers here, and this is not just a greeting, hey, grace and peace to you guys. No, this is a prayer. This is, this is a wish. I wish that God would dispense grace and peace unto you. As you listen to this, and this is just first two verses here, you see that this is not just an ancient letter written to ancient people with no relevance for us today. Not much has changed in the world today. The same counterfeit doctrines are being offered today in the world and in the church. The same counterfeit promises that something else and someone else can satisfy you today. And the message of the book of Colossians is the same today as it was then. All you need in Christ. Now as we study this book week in and week out, our desire is that we would come to see and come to know Jesus Christ as never before. And that that knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ would transform the way we live our daily life. If you're sitting here tonight, and maybe you're just like that Roman soldier in that room, listening to everything that Paul says in this book, and you're like, man, this is just foreign stuff. I have no clue what this is all about. Who is this Jesus Christ? Maybe you've been to the church your entire life, but you've actually never met Christ. You've actually never experienced what Paul is talking about here. Listen, our prayer is that you would come to know Jesus Christ. That you would come to believe in him, confess your sin, repent, and be saved. Why? Because you too need Christ. And because Christ also came and Christ brought the gospel and apostles brought the gospel and Paul wrote this letter to communicate to us the truth about Christ. 
If you don't know Christ, we invite you to come. We invite you to study this book so that you would realize for yourself who Christ is and what he has done for you. Christ gave his life so that you can have yours. And may God bless us that as we study this book, that we would fall in love with Christ all the more. Pray with me. Our Lord, we thank you for the amazing gospel we have in Christ. We thank you for the person of Christ and how vividly he is displayed in this book. And I ask that you would paint that portrait before our eyes so that every single one of us would walk from this place, transform, loving Christ all the more. I do pray for our study. I do pray for every person who will hear these messages. I do pray for everyone who will preach these messages. I pray that you would help us to be gripped with the vision of Christ. As a result of that, present them to the people. And we ask that you would save some. We know that many of those soldiers who had the first opportunity to hear these letters got saved. And we ask that you would do the same now. Save some and bring them to yourself. In Christ's name, amen.